Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, episode 14, a novel by Ed Adams. Weight throwing. Robert Olson was back at his SI6 office. Dorothy came through on the phone. There's a U.S. colonel on the phone for you, a Colonel Carson. Alton grimaced. Thank you, Dorothy. you better put him through. Alton knew that Dwight Carson was one to throw his weight around and quite capable of small-time blackmail and threats to get his own way. Dwight, to what do I owe this pleasure, he began. Hello, Robert. I think you may be in some kind of trouble at the moment. We are aware of an explosion near Cairo. Word has it some of your people were involved. What is that to which you are referring? asked Orton. Don't play dumb with me. We both know you had Karen Martin along for a rendezvous. That she was managing the Egyptian situation on the ground from Cairo. That she commissioned a stringer to go out to exchange data with a truck driver. I'm keeping it out of the media here as we speak. You know that we'll have to deny it all, answered Alton. It's easier now with so much fake news around. It's luck then that we haven't got a photograph of Karen waiting at the cafe for her stringer and then another one of him walking past the spot just before she was murdered. James, I think his name was. Alton looked dismayed. Even if what you say was true, why would we, you be calling me about it now? Why not two days ago? Two days ago, we didn't need anything. Now we want something from you. Something that I guarantee will make this go away. Go on, said Alton. We know that James has made contact with an American. We think that the contact is ex-military. We just need a name. We have, shall we say, some interest in him and his association with James. Alton was thinking quickly. Now he had met Chuck Manners and seen that he was a professional and something of a slippery character. He decided that Chuck could handle himself. And if I could provide this information... Then we'll lose the evidence about your UK involvement in the recent helicopter crash and truck destruction. I want something else, asked Alton. The name of your parallel operative. An eye for an eye, after all. He wanted to see if he could push Carson to find out how desperate he was. So, we have a deal, asked Carson. If you provide us with the information, it also gives me something to show as collateral from the trade. Alton smiled. Carson was desperate. Carson paused. Okay. We'll forgo escrow protocol. You give me the name now, and I'll give you the name in return. Alton thought, Carson is really desperate. Alton said, Colonel Chuck Manners. Carson paused again. Alton could hear some noise in the background. And your field agent was? Uh, A stringer also, a US citizen, Steve Rubin. Alton was aware that Carson had just thrown the US stringer to the wolves. He hoped that he had not done the same for Chuck Manners. Okay, thank you for that. I'll see you at the next NATO session, probably, said Carson. Over and out. Alton felt suitably trampled over by Carson. He was the proverbial bull in a china shop and simply didn't care how he obtained his information. In a few minutes, Alton had been threatened and then seen a US asset thrown away to get what Carson wanted. Tracker lock. Carson's mood escalated when he heard the news from Alton. That Colonel Chuck Manners was deployed alongside the UK stringer James raised the game. Carson was aware of Manners from various black ops dotted around the world. 
He had a staggering success rate, and yet he seemed to be able to disappear from view between operations. Now he alerted his own operations centre. They were to track James, whose cell phone ID they'd already captured, and Chuck Manners, whose cell phone could be tracked down by his stay in Cairo. They needed his hotel room, and then they would have a fix on the unique identifier of the American-issue cell phone, which legally had to carry its own tracking device. Carson was familiar enough with the Fourth Amendment to know he could break it to find manners and use the US 5519760A cellular network-based location system as the basis for a tracker alert. From this, his operations centre could see that Chuck had been close to James in Egypt, even in the same sector of the desert as the truck. They then split up and travelled separately to New York. The James had then travelled to Nice and Cannes in France, and that Chuck had followed a day or so later. They were currently co-located in Cannes, France. Chuck picked up his cell phone. Hi Chuck, it's Robert Alton. Hi Robert, this is unexpected. Yes, it's the worst news I'm afraid. A Colonel Carson in the US DOD has requested your name, and we've had to supply it. I guess he'll be looking out for you now. Please consider this a heads up. Chuck looked around. How long ago, he asked. Less than an hour, but I expect you are being tracked. Okay, said Chuck. He looked at his phone. I'll do a reverse lookup to see who is tracking me. And thanks for letting me know. I'll go dark now. Expect a text with my new phone. Chuck looked at his phone. He accessed an app called CellTrack. He pressed a special key combination, and sure enough, it revealed that there was a tracker lock on the phone. He wrote down the codes for it, and then he ejected the SIM. He knew that that was not enough now that the trackers had got his phone device identity. He walked out to the busy street. A builder's truck from Newcastle-upon-Tyne was stuck in the traffic. He gently tipped the still-switched-on phone into the truck's open rear platform. Bye-bye, he said. Happy trails. Bad America Major Garcia Ramirez reported to Colonel Dwight Carson in the Special Operations Unit based in the Pentagon. Ramirez himself was a career military person and had distinguished himself in the First Gulf War. He was now involved in senior and special work, and Carson was his normal direct reporting officer. Colonel Carson operated in a shadow world. He was involved with politics to a greater degree than anyone else that Ramirez knew, but it had normally served his department well because it was usually easy to get funding for new projects or special operations. In that respect, Carson took care of his team. But Ramirez wondered what else there was to know about Carson. He seemed to be out of the office a lot, had various secret high-powered meetings and treated a lot of information on a strict need-to-know basis. This created an image of mystique around Carson and Ramirez was one of the people who sometimes wondered what was Carson's full agenda. The reality was very complex. Carson had direct access to the President of the United States and access into the major areas of the CIA, the FBI and NSA. Carson was also well-connected and in senior in military terms, and so could get his own way on many matters. As a result, they often sought his opinion from high levels from within the US government, and Ramirez suspected that some of this opinion-giving was off the record. Examples included opinions about the Second Gulf War, including some kind of direct involvement in the discussions about the map weapons of mass destruction. But Ramirez also knew that Carson had been operating long before the Iraq War started officially. Carson had been involved in the planning of a series of air raids in an air corridor which started several months before the formal war started. 
The plans driven covertly by the Americans were to start to destroy certain kinds of border environments and logistic support points well before a real war kicked off. This gave the US military some early advantages because they both knew some terrain, but as importantly, had already destroyed most of the military hardware used by the Iraqis. Ramirez had been sent into the area at this time, into Saudi Arabia, to act as a nearby observer and to provide logistical support if required during the period that the bombings were intensifying. The most difficult press reports to suppress at the time were the Al Jazeera television reports. This was interesting to Ramirez because although the main language of the television station was Arabic, there were an increasing number of English language reports being produced which described in some details the missions which were underway. Ramirez had been situated in Saudi Arabia's capital city of Riyadh for the majority of his time in the country. He had been posing as a civilian worker and was based at a Sheraton hotel not far from the downtown area. It was a short drive to the military camps, but he preferred to stay close to the hotel and have people visit him, suitably dressed down and definitely not in uniform. Ramirez had found the operation to be fairly predictable, involving some spin of the things that were taking place and some reasonable bribes to be placed to prevent certain stories from surfacing. During this time, Ramirez had seen Carson at work close hand for the first time. It was obvious that he knew his way around the people, but also the customs and what could and could not be done and said. And, at present, it was obvious to Ramirez that Carson was involved in some special agendas. Ramirez tried to speculate what Carson knew or was doing, but it was not so very obvious. Carson had been to several meetings with chiefs of staff and direct advisers to the president. It was obvious that there was something happening, but Ramirez had no idea what it might be. Brief Ramirez Major Garcia Ramirez was sitting with Colonel Dwight Carson. The situation, there's something wrong with it, isn't there? asked Ramirez. Yes, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place, answered Carson. If you are, does that mean I am as well? asked Ramirez. Let's just say the President is involved. You'd better explain. You know that black ops chopper that was down in Egypt? Ramirez nodded. It was Israeli, operating across the border. That's like an act of war, isn't it? asked Ramirez. Unless it had been condoned, and I suspect the US put on pressure to let it take place. What was it doing, blowing up some road traffic or something, wasn't it? asked Ramirez. Correct, said Carson. In fact, it was blowing up a missile transport. That's why the reported explosion was so large, asked Ramirez. Not exactly. The truck was transporting something else, not missiles, neurotoxins. What? They are outlawed. Had the Egyptians been making them? We are in WMD territory here. No, the toxins were originally manufactured in the USA, then they were shipped to Israel for testing. Something went wrong during the test and they had to close the lab. Were there fatalities? Yes, everyone. Everyone in the lab was killed. The neurotoxin had around a one-hour life unless it's rehosted. So what was it doing on a truck? We'd done a deal with the UK to ship it to Porton Down for destruction, except for a very small amount which would be held in their sample bank. I see. Instead of holding the dangerous materials in Nevada, we're outsourcing it now. Very smart. Yes, the Brits think it's a sweet arrangement. What were they doing in Egypt? The route was by road and sea. Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Spain, Santander and then sea to the UK. 
It was intended to be low profile, compared with going across the whole of mainland Europe. Libya, though, surely that's a hornet's nest. Yes, but since the UN Unity government, there's a hint of American control, and it should have been one Arab-plated truck looking like an oil truck. But the truck didn't make it. No, the Israeli helicopter blew it up, with extra-powerful munitions to destroy the toxins. Then the chopper was downed as well. We think that was by an American freelancer, Colonel Chuck Manners. But doesn't that mean the mission is finished? asked Ramirez. Ordinarily, yes, but on this occasion there's something else, a second truck, another set of neurotoxin warheads. Where are they now? No one knows. The trackers have been demobilised and we don't know who is controlling the operation. Well, who knows about this? Almost no one. A few advisers and the president. I doubt if the truck drivers even know what they're carrying. Al Akhtar Al Akhtar was a trading company shell with Iraqi-based owners. They'd never claimed their Iraqi origins in the UK and instead pretended to be Lebanese. Their view was that Lebanese were generally accepted to the point that Lebanese restaurants and food were a very acceptable part of British culture, whereas Iraqi connotations immediately created ripples leading towards George Bush War and even echoes back to the events of September 11. The headquarters of Al Akhtar Trading was a small depot in a factory estate near the A4 main road to London. It was in an area sandwiched between railway tracks and arches. Nearby, an elevated section of the M4 motorway leading between London and London Heathrow Airport created continuous noise. The entrance to the trading estate advertised van rental and shot blasting along with a mobile phone number. This was a fairly rough part of town. The environment was a low-rise series of buildings where double glazing depots, carpet warehouses and a small company who installed car alarms were grouped together. There was a steady traffic of cars, vans and small trucks, which was a combination of private customers and low-end tradesmen. This was an area where the Middle Eastern traders were able to run a bland-looking business in a way which pretty much escaped detection. There was always some bustle from the premises and occasionally people engaged in prayers at certain key times of the Islamic day, but the people kept themselves to themselves. They wore mainly simple Western clothes, although sometimes there would be visitors in more overt Arabic clothing. But the location and type of visitors did not seem unusual or special. The reality was very different. Because this trading company held a cell of a terrorist unit with plans to destroy key parts of the London infrastructure. We can control via asymmetric warfare, explained Ali Al-Mansur. The power we bring can crush opposition and make strong our view. In the corner sat another western-looking man in his late forties, but tanned and fit, looking like a soldier or ex-soldier, and certainly someone who could handle himself. Correct, he commented. We have some extensive plans for the next two weeks. He looked around the room meaningfully. Is everyone clear that they want to help? Ali al-Mansur repeated the question in Arabic, and there were a few yelps of support from those in the room. Al-Aktar was forming its army of destruction and had the first block of recruits ready for action. Let's go through the plan, continued Al-Mansur. Not now, responded the European, looking down to the floor. When we have a clearer plan, I want to brief people in groups. I don't want everyone to know all aspects in case someone is captured. Al-Mansur nodded his agreement. Then tonight we send people away. 
and then meet again in smaller groups, maybe at the mosques. The European nodded again and walked towards the door. As he did so, a black car pulled up outside the office. He stepped into the back seat and waved the car away. Al-Aqtar had created their base camp in Egypt. It was far enough from Cairo to be inaccessible to casual travellers, yet close enough to benefit from the transport infrastructure. It was also out of the usual zone of spy planes and satellite surveillance which would attract attention to any of the Istans. The White Desert is a large area of remote desert, yet the four strategic areas of Bahareya, Farafra, Takla and Karga provide water, accommodation and ready transport, together with t- traffic of tourists, which provided good cover for the tourist cells as they moved people into and out of their training and briefing centres. Khalid al-Sharif was the head of the cell and had run several briefings to recent groups about the plans for ways to destabilise the Western economy. To achieve this, they needed significant weapons and had decided to infiltrate the DOD to achieve this. They would need to know where significant weapons were stored and where they could be transported. A contact high in the US military had been identified who could be leveraged to provide the basic information. The contact had asked for money, both for himself and to pay out another person from the UK security services. Al-Aqtar's plan was to hit the two major financial centres in Europe in a way that would create mass outward movements of money. This would have a devastating effect upon the Western economy of Europe as money was moved to other parts of the world. There would be a combination of civilian casualty from the acts of terrorism, but there would also be great levelling of the conditions between Europe and the Middle East as a consequence of the outflow of money and the collapse of companies. The level of this required major impact in the areas to be affected, and in London there were features such as the transit system which could help the effective spread of a chemical agent. In Frankfurt, it was slightly harder because there was no equivalent of the London Underground, but the major intention was to get two major exclusion zones created for the city centres of London and Frankfurt. The plan required careful coordination such that the two planned attacks would happen within a short time of one another. Al-Aqtar was using the desert base as a briefing and training centre for the people to be involved in the attacks, and because the training camp was close to a tourist route through the desert, it had the advantage of ease of access without undue suspicion. There were several companies which conducted tours to the area, and Al-Aqtar had created its own company for the same purpose, with the exception that guests were all part of the terror cells. It was a bold plan that worked well and created little suspicion. Another camp in Pakistan was used for firearms and general fitness training, and it was only the elite who passed through into the Cairo desert on their way to full deployment. Khalid al-Sharif was in a meeting with several of the key operatives. Most people will not know the full plan, he said. You are a few privileged to know what we plan to do. We will take the nerve agents and deploy them in two city centres. We will also create diversions at nearby major airports as a way to distract large amounts of military from our primary purpose. There will be a couple of random attacks on civilian planes as the start of the plan. We will detonate planes on the ground. This is symbolic and will create huge flows of police and emergency services to the respective airports. Once this occurs, we will launch our primary attacks on the two major city centres. This will involve the release of nerve agents simultaneously from several key locations in each city centre. The diversion of the airport attacks will create confusion which allows our primary purpose to be obtained. There are a lot of questions, said one of the people being briefed. He was a 25-year-old with a dark beard and wore desert clothing and dark glasses. How do we attack the airport and what happens when we release the nerve gas? 
First, there will be an attack on airports using Saudi Air Force missiles, which we've acquired via a series of contacts. We're incorporating them into the design for a couple of trucks for shipment to the respective countries. The nerve agent is very compact and can be handheld by our followers up to the moment of deployment. There will be martyrs as a consequence of freeing the chemicals into the air. The chemical agent is of a power that each cylinder will affect 50,000 people. Once in the system, such as a railway system, it will have devastating reach. The group receiving the briefing talked briefly amongst themselves. Will we be martyrs as part of this? One of them asked. No, your job is to find the believers who will take the chemical to the places where it needs to be deployed. You will ensure that trusted men carry forward this mission, replied Caliph al-Sharif. And how will the airport part be handled, asked another. We've already selected a driver to take the payload across Europe, and we have two locations where the commissioning can take place. We've been planning this for a long time. We're well bankrolled and have access to the necessary people, continued Caliph al-Sharif. (laughs) 